0: Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. This podcast was sponsored by the Ernst and Gertrude Tico Charitable Foundation. This is Jim Zobel with Dr. Michael Nyberg, and today we are here to talk about Field Marshal Ferdinand Foch. Dr. Nyberg, General Foch really grows up in this shadow of the Napoleonic era and Napoleon III. Can you talk about the effect that this has on him? Sure.
1: He is a young enlisted man in 1870 when the Franco-Prussian War begins. It results in the defeat of France, the occupation of... Uh, the city of Mez, where he is assigned in eastern France as German-occupied, uh, becomes part of Germany, um, and Foch definitely felt those humiliations and felt those stings. Uh, he definitely was one of the people in France talking about revanche, which is the French word for revenge, uh, and he also had a ca- a very careful understanding of the war that you had to sort of keep the public rallied behind the cause. So one of the explanations of the collapse in 1870 is that the people of France didn't really understand what they were fighting for and didn't really keep that kind of connection to the soldiers. So he's a young man then, but he definitely takes away those lessons. He also takes away the lessons that the attacker normally wins and the defender is the one constantly reacting to the attacker. So uh, these are all lessons that he comes out with. Um, He also makes his decision to make the military his life, to make the military his career, and to really really study it so that he uh, becomes at one point the commander of the French War College, um, which is across from the Champs Elysees in Paris, reforms their curriculum and really becomes a kind of intellectual when it comes to war. And these are all lessons I think that he takes out of his experience in 1870,
0: 1871. After the war and his enlistment he gets into the polytechnic for artillery. But then after that, he
1: goes into the cavalry. Mm -hmm. Is, Is this normal? for officers of that era? Uh, No, uh, it's not normal, um, but it's also a period of great transition in the French military. The uh, the Franco-Prussian War, one of the things that it does is that it takes out a lot of the aristocrats who had been the cavalry officers. Uh, The artillery tended to be middle class and kind of lower middle class officers, people that had the right technical skills. So it's an opportunity for him that the war opened up to learn something about two of the three major branches. And then of course he gets very interested in the infantry as well but um it's not particularly normal but then there's a lot about Foch's background and career that is a little bit abnormal.
0: Now most of those French generals that we read about in World War 1 they all had some sort of colonial service. Does Foch see any colonial service? No, at all? this is
1: another way in which he's very unusual. Um I'm not sure I think it's his preference. I think he probably did what he could to avoid colonial assignments uh, because he saw France's fundamental problem as being Germany, uh, not being out in the empire. So most of the officers that are out in the empire are much more focused on the problem of Great Britain than they are of Germany uh, because in the empire th- there was no real German threat. The threat is British until about 1898 when the two countries come to an agreement. So this is another way, I think, to explain Foch's single-minded devotion to the problem of securing France and not worrying so much about distant places like Indochina. And like
0: the British general said, the only thing that matters to him is the Rhine right, River. The, right.
1: The, the, my, my, my definition of the empire ends at the Rhine or something, you know, those kinds of thinking. Wow. Uh, which is certainly there in a lot of people's minds. My overseas map stops at the Rhine. Hmm. Um, and that's certainly what Foch is worried about.
0: At the French War College, um, he's a student and then a teacher and he really becomes a master of the history of mm-hmm. franco-prussian war as well as the napoleonic campaigns and he begins to formulate his own ideas of war and he publishes the principles of war and the conduct of war and can you briefly describe Bosch's theories?
1: Sure. They've been characterized or caricatured, I guess, as being uh, overly focused on the attack and on the anelan. In other words, his argument is that the side that wins is the side that is kind of conditioned to win intellectually. So in his mind, the problem is not so much industrial, although he's certainly interested in the weapons of war, but it is in the way that officers prepare their men. It is the way in which they're... Their mindset is prepared, and part of that means explaining to them why they're fighting, explaining to them what the purpose of the war is, and then operationally, he's very much uh, uh, of the mindset that the attack is by far the stronger to the defense. Uh, Now, in 1914, these ideas don't work terribly well, Uh, and again, to Foch's credit, he's able to go back and say, okay, what I taught didn't work. What do we do now? And uh, we may talk about this, but there's a period when he's kind of out of favor with the French government, and he uses that time period to to really go back, reread what he wrote, take a look at his experiences of war, and to his credit, to go back and say, "Look, what I thought in 1914 just isn't working. What do we have to do in 1917 and 1918?" So he's continually an evolving student. Yes, of he's war. got an incredible uh, ability. It's not an easy thing to do to to say, "Look, everything I thought I knew is wrong," especially later in life. Uh, when our brains tend to get a little more rigid. Uh, But he can do it. He can see on the battlefield that it isn't working. Um, He understands that mass formations are no good in an era of kind of rapid-fire artillery and machine guns, and you've got to come up with something better. Hmm. And I think he's also an unusual French general in, in seeing the ways that it is an alliance war, so that the French are not going to win. The alliance is going to win. And that means dealing with the British, it means dealing with the Italians, it means dealing with the Russians, though he's less interested in that, and later it means dealing with the Americans. Mm. Now, in 1908, he's named head of the
0: war college in France, but it was kind of a rough appointment from (laughs) Clemenceau. Uh, Can you talk about this and those that held his own family's religious affiliations against him?
1: Yeah, this is a period of um, the early 20th century, um, 1890s and into the First World War, when France is kind of badly divided by a series of scandals. Um, The conservative element of France, which Foch certainly belonged to, was Catholic, uh, what was called La France Éternelle, this kind of um, more rural, um, outside of Paris Clemenceau very much represents the kind of Paris middle class elite, which is, uh, for the most part, um, if not quite atheist, at least not terribly religious, although Clemenceau himself was certainly an atheist. Uh, so there is a there's a cultural divide. Uh, and there was an attempt by the French government to kind of weed out some of these overly Catholic, overly conservative, overly old fashioned, as they saw it, uh, officers. And Foch was one that kind of came under a little bit of scandal for this, uh, not because of anything he'd done wrong, but simply because of what he believed. Uh, Columbus, so, to his credit when he became prime minister, said, "We we can't have this. We've got to get the most talented people we can into these positions. So you get this weird partnership that starts to develop, two men who eventually came to hate each other and hate each other desperately. Uh, but they also recognize that Foch is the right person to be in command of this of this, of this war college. Uh, so Clemenceau tells Foch, look, I guess he uses a, um, some very straightforward plain language uh, and says, look, I don't give a blank uh, who you are or what you believe. I want you to command this war college and you're going to have it. So Foch says something like, uh, after being thrown out of a window, I came back in through the front door. Only to be thrown out the window. <laughs> Only to be thrown out again, but, you know, th- these are things that happen. And Foch, you know, Foch until about 1918, 1919, I guess, uh, Foch and Clemenceau develop, I think, a healthy respect and working relationship until the Paris Peace Conference, mm. uh, when things start to go bad. But, um, but it's an interesting relationship between two men who, being both French, it's hard to imagine two men who saw the world differently than those two.
0: While he's there uh, running the war college, some British, especially Sir Henry Wilson, Uh, general, uh, Mm -hmm. they start to notice his ideas, and they
1: seek him out.
0: Can you talk about this relationship between Wilson and Foch?
1: Yeah, I think this is part of what I was talking about earlier. Foch came to the realization before, I think, most other French leaders did, uh, that they were going to need not just the British Navy, not just the Royal Navy in the North Sea, but they were going to need a a British army alongside them if they were going to win. Um, and, you know, this is a time period when the British army was not very big. Uh, there's a, supposedly a story where General von Moltke in Germany was asked what he would do if the British army landed on the continent. And Moltke is supposed to have said, I'll, I'll send the Berlin police to arrest them. So that this is how little people think of the British army. Uh, Foch is not of that mindset. Uh, he's aware that in a long war, Britain would have the capability, not just from the British Isles, but from the empire, to be able to build a very large army. So he's very careful to reach out to British officers, including you mentioned Sir Henry Wilson, with whom he has a lifelong friendship. Uh, and he's very careful to make sure that whatever he's planning, there is an option, there's a way that the British can can participate in a ground war and a sea war. I don't think it's true, but there is a rumor that he is supposed to have said, all I need is one British soldier and I'll make sure we get him killed. In other words, all we have to do is get Britain to make the commitment and then they're in. Um, I haven't been able to find any evidence that he actually said that, um, but it's consistent with I think the way that he was thinking,
0: and when the war comes, a lot of the british generals they, they don't like a lot of the French generals, but they like him, don't they?
1: they do uh they they see that he's thinking bigger, he's thinking not just about France but he's thinking about the alliance, which is not true of joffre and many of the other French generals who sort of think that you know it it is the French who will run the ground war, and the British will hew to their orders. um Foch doesn't see it that way. Foch understands that the british army will work better if the British Army is fighting for what the British Army wants, not just what the French Army wants it to want. Um, and Foch sees that, I think, before anybody else does. So he's able in his mind to kind of understand his role both as a French general and as a general of the Alliance. Mm. And that's important. At the
0: opening of the war, uh, Foch is with the 20th Corps and the army in the, invading Alsace-Lorraine. And the invasion is a total disaster. But the 20th Corps holds up pretty well. A lot of people have said that they saved that army from destruction. Do you believe
1: that? Yeah, he might have. Uh, It's hard to know. Um, He certainly commands better in the opening weeks than many others do. In some ways, the things he does badly are things he gets admired for. In other words, um, he's a little bit insubordinate, but it turns out that his commanding officers were wrong, so his insubordination can be forgiven. And if he has one fault, it's that he tends to attack too much and he tends to be a little bit too aggressive. What that means is it does keep the Germans kind of off balance as they're advancing west. So even the things he does wrong tend to look fairly good. Again, I doubt that he said it, but he's supposed to have said at one point uh, my left is collapsing. My right is surrounded. My center is being attacked. Situation is excellent. I'll attack. You know, <laughs> these, right. he's kind of like everything is fine kind of ad- attitudes. And even his critics admire him for that, that he can walk into a room where everybody is despondent. Everybody thinks it's hopeless. And within five seconds, as one of the British generals said, he could get the dead to rise up and fight. You know, he, he has that confidence that, that it's going to be okay. And he has the intellectualism to make the argument. He's not just saying, let's just attack, attack, attack. He he, he understands the way to motivate people around him. Mm. So th- those qualities come through. Does Now, is it that defense
0: that brings the notice of Joffrey, or does Joffrey know him from before to give him the Ninth Army?
1: They all know each other. It's not okay. a terribly big senior officer corps. Uh, they all know who's who. Uh, they all know, my guess would be they all knew before this started who was going to perform well and who was ah. likely not going to perform well. So... Putting Foch in charge of the Ninth Army is a is a logical conclusion. It's, it's a smart thing to do, um, and I think Joff must have known that. And they all know each other. It's mm. it's not a very big officer corps. I mean, it is by their standards. It's not by what we would think of right. today. Right, and pre-war, everybody knows each other. Pre-war, one, everybody right? knows each other. At that level, with, every, with th- two, three, four stars on your shoulder, yeah. everybody knows everybody. Now,
0: while he's got the 20th Corps and then going to 9th Corps. Ninth but, Army. Yeah, Ninth yeah. Army, I mean. Both his son and his son-in-law are killed. Killed on battle. the same day. Same day. Yeah. I mean, uh, do we know what kind of effect this has on him at all?
1: Yeah, we do. We know that it, it made him even more determined to win the war. Um, we, we, this is true of a lot of these guys, and, you know, you have to have a lot of sympathy. You know, men that lost four sons, five sons in the war, lost nephews, lost, you know, they... they this is the Victorian period. They're not supposed to show too much emotion. They're supposed to just get back to work, and, and most of them do. Um, for Foch, I'm sure, uh, it, it it dedicated him and led him to want to get this war over with and, and provided, I'm sure, a lot of fuel for him throughout the rest of the war.
0: Now, uh, after the Second Battle of the Marne, Joffre puts Foch in charge of Army Group North.
1: First your first Battle of the Marne, you mean? Yeah, yeah,
0: first Battle of the Marne. And this is getting into these campaigns of the Artois campaign and Vimy, Vimy Ridge, and the Somme. And Foch is really just trying to hold on, right? Um, but he takes a lot of blame for this, and basically falls out of favor when Joffre is relieved for mm-hmm. Neville later on. And do you think this blame is deserved?
1: Well, I think there was a need to to find new commanders. I think there was a need to. To do things differently, um, rightly or wrongly, Foch is associated with a lot of the really bloody campaigns of 1915 and 1916. Uh, the 1915 campaigns, probably, he deserves some fault for. In 1916, he was really executing somebody else's ideas. Uh, but it is true that you know France is losing an awful lot of men, and that they're they're not getting any further along. So you know, any any unsuccessful enterprise, you have to look at the leadership and make some decisions. So Foch came under. Um, Increasing criticism when his mentor Joff uh, was fired, in effect fired, uh, Foch was a casualty of that as well. So it, in the end, it probably did more good than harm because, it, like as I said earlier, it did give him a chance to rest. His health was starting to fail. It did give him a chance to go back to basics and say, okay, what what do I think went wrong here, to reassess and how do we everything. fix it? And without that time in the wilderness, I don't know that he would have ever been able to do that. But he's recalled pretty quickly. He is. He's recalled as soon as the Nivelle offensives fail and as soon as it becomes obvious that they need his brain. They need someone that can help reorganize this. And at first they put him in the job of chief of staff, uh, which is a job where he isn't leading troops so much as he is figuring out organization and figuring out um, you know, h- how to get the French army to interact both with the French political system and with the British-Italian and soon the American armies as well. And it's a job that he's very, very well suited for. And for most of that,
0: 1917, he's really advocating for this supreme command. He is. Uh, which they give him in, in March of 1918 after the first Ludendorff offensive. Now, how was this
1: decision made? Was it because of the offensives? That Absolutely. They just throw everybody into a panic? There's actually, uh, so the Germans uh, conduct this big offensive in the spring of 1918 to try to win the war before the Americans can show up in big numbers. Uh, they are successful at first by throwing everything into the battle. There's a famous moment. It's in a stained glass window commemorated now in a little town called Doulance, which is close enough to the Western Front that the, the, the conferees can hear the guns of the Western Front. Uh, they step into the room. This is the, all the prime ministers, this is all the big name people. And they're trying to figure out what they're going to do. And everybody is despondent and everybody is panicked. And they're talking about abandoning Paris and all this stuff. And Foch slams his two fists on the table and he says, this isn't about Paris. This is about stopping the Germans right here, right now. And they sort of turn to him and they say, okay, what's your plan? And he says, well, look, here, here's the plan. Here, here's what we're going to do. And part of what we're going to do is, is we're going to quit thinking of this as a French-British-Italian war. We're going to start thinking of it as one alliance war, and we're going to name a supreme commander, and that supreme commander is going to have control over reserves so that he can move them to where the general crisis is, not just where the national crisis is. Uh, and he's the only one that's coming in with that sort of confidence and saying it's not all lost. We, we can win this, and there are there are advantages coming. He uses a, a, a phrase from a German philosopher, Karl von Clausewitz, we're going to wait until the culminating point, that is that moment when the Germans have overreached and that's when we're going to hit him back. So patience, reorganization, we got this. And so at Toulon's, they turn to him and they say, okay, you, you, you've got the supreme command. There's a wonderful moment where Clemenceau says to him, uh, you've now got it, you've got the power you always wanted. And Foch turns to him and says, it's a great gift you've given me. You've given me a battle lost and you asked me to win it. And of course he does. I
0: mean, he really is the architect of, of victory in 1918. He's I mean, the guy. First you have the... the defense of the Friedensturm, and then mm-hmm. the counterattack, um, and now he's got all these Americans coming. Well, what are his views of the Americans?
1: So his view is that the Americans eventually, the key word being eventually, will fight better under an all-American command structure. But until that moment, France can't gamble its future on these inexperienced soldiers who don't quite know what they're doing. So his plan uh, is not to take the Americans and feed them into French armies, as Pétain and other French generals wanted to do and British generals wanted to do, a concept called amalgamation. Uh, What Foch wanted to do was keep American divisions, a division here being about, say, 22,000 men, keep American divisions together, but put them inside larger French corps and armies so that the staff work, uh, all of the really sophisticated stuff that had to be done could be done by experienced officers, and let the Americans begin to learn, especially on parts of the battlefield where German resistance was known to be a little bit lighter. So he does have a clear plan of what he wants to do, but the long-term plan is that eventually the Americans will get their own dedicated section of the Western Front, and that its commander, John Pershing, will have the same rights and privileges as any other commander. You just don't want to do this while the Germans are still pressing towards Paris. Mm -hmm. At the war's end, uh, Bush accepts the surrender. But did he advocate
0: unconditional surrender? Or he did he, not. He, okay, so he thought it was it needed to end then.
1: Right. So in about uh, as at, least, at least by about the middle of October, he had figured out the terms that he thought France and the Allies could live with. And that meant not an unconditional surrender, as you mentioned, not a full occupation of Germany. Uh, what it would mean would be the liberation of Alsace and Lorraine, the liberation of Belgium, anything else in Western Europe that the Germans had occupied. Uh, it meant three Allied bridgeheads across the Rhine River. Uh, those were, in his mind, military terms. And what he really wanted out of the armistice was a condition by which the Germans could not resume the war, then it would be up to the politicians to figure out what to do next. At least that was, in theory, how it was supposed to work. So he gets the signature on November 11, 1918, famously, puts it in his briefcase, uh, takes it over to Clemenceau, brings it to him in Paris, and literally says to him, my work is over, now your work begins. I I got the armistice. Now turn this into a peace that France can live with. But he doesn't believe in the peace, does he? Well, he doesn't believe in what Clemenceau eventually does, no. (laughs) Uh, Eventually, that's not what what Foch had in mind. Uh, He is not a believer in Wilson's League of Nations. He's not a believer in uh, a lot of the ideas that are floating around. Um, In Foch's mind, the problem is that the German state grew too big too fast in the middle of the 19th century. The solution to it is to physically reduce the power of Germany. And that's not what eventually they decide to do, at least not to Foch's satisfaction.
0: And he has a dire prediction, doesn't he?
1: He does. He says uh, in the end he did not go to the signing ceremony of of the the Treaty of Versailles on June 28, 1919. And he said this is not peace, this is an armistice for 20 years. And if you think about that... Thinking that the Second World War began September 1st, 1939 in Europe, he was off by just a couple of months. Couple so months. it's a remarkable statement. He also said you can monitor Germany, all you, you, can, you can enforce all you want on Germany about the, how many tanks they can have and how many airplanes you can have. But there's absolutely no way you can monitor it. And there's absolutely no way you can know whether they're doing what they say they're going to do. And, of course, he was right about that, too. Dr. Nyberg, thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.